Once you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 6 as we continue on uh, studying the Gospel of John. And we've been in chapter 6 uh, a couple weeks ago. Last week, um, had a great Sunday. By the way, I just checked. Guess what, guys? He is still risen. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. He is risen. Isn't that great? And, and I tell you, we get pumped up about Resurrection Sunday, don't we? We get excited because we get to celebrate. But guess what? Nothing's changed in the last six, seven days, right? Jesus is still alive, and I'm so glad for that. And we come to learn of him, to celebrate him, and just uh, to enjoy life in him. And that's what we get to kind of look at today because Jesus, you see, in John chapter 6, we started with this wonderful account, this great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, right? Uh, just incredible. 5,000 men it accounts for, let alone the, the woman and the children that would have been there. So upwards of 15,000. With five loaves of bread, two small fish, Jesus feeds the multitude. Now, it's a good thing that that miracle didn't happen today. If it happened today, it may have looked a little bit more like this, Right? I can't eat that. I'm a vegan. How's that fish been tested with mercury? Is that bread gluten-free? Yeah, the miracle would have gone a little bit differently today's setting. So we're glad it happened back then. But here's Jesus just doing a great work here. And Jesus, in this whole account here, he's showing that Jesus is more than just a, a miracle worker. He's more than just a, a, a prophet that's come to, you know, just speak good words. Jesus wants to leave people now past their own fleshly desires and the things that they're maybe craving and desiring in life to really bring them to a more greater need in their lives. That's the spiritual need to kind of look at their spiritual condition. So in this next section, Jesus looks to tie in the, the actual feeding of the 5,000 to the more practical meaning and message behind the miracle. So today, we're going to look at verses 22 to 40, Lord willing. And, and we're going to look at these two things here, the curiosity of the seekers and then the correction by the Savior. The curiosity of the seekers, verses 22 to 31, and then the, the, the correction by the Savior in verses 32 to 40. Look at verse 22 with me. Let's read a few verses. Here's what it says. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, the other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, these first few verses here read a little bit kind of clunky as you're reading through that you're kind of like what's going on i understand let me try to break it down a little bit for you but understand we're talking about the day after the miracle so people are still kind of hanging out in that area where they've just been fed and fed so that they're satisfied remember that account everybody ate until they were full i i love that it's so good when jesus does something he does it well People just didn't have a little snack, a morsel to tie them over. They ate till they were filled. So here they are. They're, the next day now, they get up. And they're excited. They're like, hey, where's Jesus? It's breakfast time, right? He's the guy to get us some food, right? He's already showing it. So they're all looking for Jesus. They're, they're excited. But you see, they're being driven by their own fleshly appetites. They're like, Jesus is the one that's going to help us. He's the one that's going to feed us. So they start looking for Jesus. And they realize that the disciples had already gone away. In a boat, they're looking around, there's no boats there, and they 
assume that Jesus is still there because Jesus didn't get in the boat with the disciples. So they're all looking around for Jesus. Where is he? Where's, where's he gone? And we got to find him because he's the guy that's going to help us, right? So the disciples, they've sailed off to Capernaum. Now, you remember the situation that we encountered that, you know, there's a great storm, right? And Jesus came walking out to them on the water. But the crowd doesn't know that. They're thinking, well, Jesus didn't leave with the disciples. I'm sure he didn't, he didn't walk to Capernaum in the evening time. It just wouldn't have been safe. It's not the time to go for a little walk out there when you can't see what's going on. So surely Jesus is still here. That's their, their reasoning, their, their conclusion. But let me just draw your attention to something here at the end of verse 3 before we kind of move on and see how this unfolds here. Because this whole first three verses we've read like i said it kind of reads a little bit clunky it's kind of hard to follow but then john records that this place where they ate the bread after the lord had given thanks do you see that at the end of verse 23 other boats came from tabiris near the place where they ate bread after the lord had given thanks john records this interesting sort of summary of the miracle place where they ate bread after the lord had given thanks you kind of go, why did you include like that? Why, why did you write about after they ate bread when Jesus, you know, divided up five loaves and two fish to feed over 5,000 people? You'd think, why not emphasize that? But yet Jesus emphasizes after the Lord had given thanks. I think maybe John is drawing us into the reality, to the key to our contentment. That, that Jesus is actually going to be touching on in this passage that we're looking at. Because he's going to be dealing with people that are looking to satisfy their own cravings and desires. Not really living with contentment. But Jesus wants to draw us in this place for us to understand really the key to our contentment. What's the key to our contentment? Giving thanks. Being thankful. Being thankful for what we have in Jesus. For what he's already done for us. You see, Jesus doesn't take those five loaves and two fish and go, well, God, you haven't given me much to work with here. So, well, let's just see what we can do. He's not critical. He's not begrudging. He's not complaining. He's giving thanks for the little that he has. How, how, let me, let me just ask you guys to just evaluate. The last time that you complained over something, when was it? What were you complaining about? Don't, Shout out any answers and just keep it to yourself. But think about that. When was I just in a really kind of critical mood and complaining? And think about, was that really necessary to go there? Did I really need to complain and be critical over that? Last time I was complaining was over what you guys were all complaining about. So we need to really help each other out here a little bit to, you know, kind of, no, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. But we can easily find ourselves complaining, being critical over things, rather than giving thanks. And you know what? When we begin to give thanks for what we do have, for what God has done for us, it causes all that other stuff that we can easily complain about and be critical over to sort of just kind of become a little more insignificant to help us to realize that I don't really need to complain over those things. Now, John records that for us. I think that's a key and we're going to be seeing that area and need for contentment and Jesus will be addressing that as we move along because really, if your go-to is to complain and grumble, it's going to rob you of your peace and your joy, of your thankfulness in the Lord. So look at verse 25, moving along now. And verse 25, when they, the crowd, had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
They're shocked, right? So they all, they all finally get in these boats that came from Tiberias. They sail up. Now, most likely, it's kind of, um, you know, debated over where this feeding of the 5,000 took place. There's a place called Tabga that's kind of in the northwestern area of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum, where the disciples sailed, is kind of in the northern part of the sea. And so, most likely, there's some say it's, it was the feeding of the 5,000 was more on the eastern side, but um, Tabga, there's a neat little church there that you can go to and see this incredible mosaic from uh, an early period of, of church history with the, the feeding of the, the the loaves and the fish in this mosaic tiles, it's incredible. You got to come to Israel to see that. And we're going in March, so let's go. Next Sunday, info meeting, come on out to that. Just a shameless little plug every time I get a chance to do that. But um, So many believe it's Tabga in the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee. So they come over now, they get to, they get to Capernaum, and they're shot. Jesus, when did you get here? We've been looking all over for you. Why did you, how did you get here? Surely didn't walk at night. We didn't see you get in the boat. The disciples, there were no boats left there. How did you get here? They're baffled over how he eluded them. Now, Jesus could have easily just shocked them, right? At this moment. I mean, this is a moment for the Messiah just to really show his, his awesomeness. He could have said to them, oh yeah, man, I just took the most direct route and I just walked right along on the water. Could you imagine the faces of the crowd when they hear Jesus say that? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't go there. You see, this was something that Jesus did to really grow the faith of his disciples. When he walked on the, on the water and calmed the storm there with his disciples, that was a sign, that was something for his disciples to see, for them to really grow in their faith and understanding of who Jesus was. Because that really began to kind of bolster their faith in who Jesus was over that. But this wasn't a time for the, the whole crowd to understand that. I mean, he could have demonstrated that right then. And just won people over to go, oh, well, okay. If there wasn't already any doubt after the feeding of the 5,000, now you've just cemented it for us that you are the Messiah. But Jesus was operating on that divine timetable. This is not the time for everybody just to understand who the Messiah was because then they would have moved towards that political endeavor of trying to cause him to go, you know, and, and again, see the throne of Israel and the rule of Israel established. So this is not the time for that. So Jesus doesn't reveal that to the crowd. So what Jesus does is he kind of cuts right through the charade of everything here. And he reveals their true motives. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now Jesus knows full well that their motivation in finding him is rooted in their own selfish gain. They're not looking for Jesus because they see him to be this, you know, Son of God, this this Messiah, this one that they need to really get to know they're following Jesus. They're seeking after Jesus simply because they want a free meal out of this, right? They see Jesus like that kind of broken vending machine where you don't even have to put money in. You just push the button and, and out comes the candy. But ever, ever encountered that? I remember as a child, you know, coming up, broken vending machine, just hit a button. And it's a real ethical dilemma at that moment when you're like 10 years old. It's like, is this God's provision? Should I take what I, whatever I can get, you know? And your parents come along and like, oh, it's probably better, we better notify somebody. You're like, what are you talking about? You don't tell anybody. 
This is like gold right here, you know? But they're seeing Jesus as this like broken vending machine. You just, you just ask and boom, you got whatever you want. Push the button and it's all there for you. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to do anything. It's just there. And that's what's driving them in these things. So Jesus wants to shift their thinking and what they're seeking. He says to them in verse 27, Do not labor for the food which perishes. Now Jesus isn't saying, you know, don't work so as to earn a paycheck and be able to buy your, your food for your family and provide for your family. He's not saying don't work. But what he's saying here is don't strive after that which isn't going to last. Don't make your whole life about trying to consume these things and find satisfaction in those things that aren't going to last. Because we can all so easily be led by our, our fleshly appetites. I mean, let's just be honest with each other here that I think that oftentimes becomes a real focus is being led by our fleshy appetites where that begins to be the focus and the pursuit of what we're doing. Jesus instead says, strive for the food which endures to everlasting life. We all need to evaluate in our lives the things that are perishing and the things that are eternal. In other words, what really has value? What really has value? And is that the things that I am pursuing, that I'm desiring? What are some things? Let's shout out some answers here. What are some things that we can be living for that have that eternal value? Things that aren't perishing. Pardon me? Heart. Okay. What else? What, what are some things that we can be doing or how we're living that has that eternal value? Giving. Giving? Great. Witnessing. Witnessing. Yeah. What else? Kindness. kindness. Sure. Showing kindness. What else? Anything else? Praying. Praying. It's a good one. Yeah. Pardon me? Serving others. Serving others. Yeah. Those are great. Good answers, everybody. And so that's what Jesus is getting at. What are you, what are you living for? What are you striving after? Is it things that are just perishing that are feeding the the fleshy appetites or is it things that are really having an eternal value and reward to it here's what jesus would say in matthew 6 31 to 33 therefore do not worry saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for after all these things the gentiles seek for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things but seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you think about it we spend a lot of time and focus concerned about our, our material bodies or material things. All these things are all going to perish. Yes, even your good looks will one day perish. And we tried, oh, too late. Sorry, said too late. Was that, was that to me? Was that a word for me? Thank you for that very hard honesty. But that's fine. Um, yeah. We can spend a lot of time and money and focus on these things that are perishing. And, and, and yet, one day, I mean, our own bodies, they're going to be worm food. It's just the reality. Oh, it'll be resurrected. We get it. But it's, it's to meet the ground one day. We need to be sure we're feeding our spirit, our soul. And that comes through all those things that we talked about. Praying, reading the word, witnessing, serving others, showing all these great things. It's just carrying out the will of God. It's like, God, what do you desire from me? 
What's your will? I want to I want to live for that. I want to live according to that. I want to carry those things out. That's an investment that's not going to deteriorate or be lost. Why? Well, because the reward comes from the Son of Man, whom it says God has set his seal on. Do you, do you see that there at the end of verse 28? Or sorry, verse 27? Because God the Father set his seal on. The Son of Man will give you these things. He'll reward you for those things because God has set his seal on him. Now, a seal was used to show ownership or authentication, right? Jesus was indeed authorized and he was authenticated by God. He's the real deal and he's worth living for. That's kind of what we're seeing here. And we too, now as believers, guess the, guess what? The great thing is that we too have been sealed now by the Holy Spirit that we are now of God, that we're his. He sealed us. We're, it denotes that ownership. We're not our own and we've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. We're signed, sealed, and delivered. Ephesians 1 verse 13 and 14 says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So live for him. That's what we're seeing here because it's the life that's worth living and it's the life that yields the greatest reward when we surrender our lives to him, when we live for him and we're not pursuing our desires and cravings but rather pursuing that which is of him and seeking him alone. So here's the thing now. This crowd is hearing these things. They're like, oh, okay, don't, don't pursue all these things that are perishing. All right, well, how do we achieve that? How do we do this? So look at what they ask in verse 28. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in him whom he sent. Now here's the problem. So many people quickly default to that place of trying to earn their way. Right? They think of, okay, if I'm going to be in Christ, if I'm going to have that salvation, well, that's something I got to, I got to earn. I got to work for it. I've got to live the right way. I've got to do the right things because surely I don't just get salvation just freely. And so many people, and, and, and the problem is that our, our society, our culture just doesn't often operate that way. Grace is a difficult thing for people, right? I mean, oftentimes, when somebody wants to just give you something, we, we have a hard time. I have a hard time with that. I'm like, no, I don't want to just take, no. I've got to earn this. I want to, I want to pay you back somehow. I have a hard time with that. Grace is difficult sometimes. I need a lot of practice if you can just help me and just try to keep giving me things to just help me receive it without. But maybe you're like that and it's, it's difficult sometimes. And it's the same way. With salvation, we're thinking, Jesus, no, this can't just be given to me without me having to do something. I've got to earn it. I've got to work for this. Now, what's interesting is there's a couple different Greek words being used here for work. The first word they use here is this word, ergazomi, and it speaks of a, a laborious work or a strained work, right? But then Jesus replies and he says, this is the work of God. And he uses the Greek word ergon, which speaks of a, a regular work or, or an act or a thing done. And notice the crowd asks, 
How can they do the works of God? Plural, right? The works and an accumulated kind of effort. But Jesus says, here's the work of God. Singular. There's one thing. Just one thing they need to do. And the work of God is not really work. It's not an effort. There's no strain involved in it. It's simply this, that you believe in him. That's it. That's the work of God. That's the way that a person comes to faith, salvation, that receives new life, that they're born again. It's not by striving, working, trying to attain or achieve this through your own effort. It's simply through believing in him. How good is that? It's a free gift. Now, all too often, people want to feel like they're contributing some way to it. They want to feel like they're, they're earning their salvation. And sometimes that's done because there's that guilt that they want to feel like they've merited this favor with God. So they want to try to, you know, take this guilt away by doing a good work. Sometimes people fall into that place of trying to earn it simply because it, it, it's just pure pride. It feeds their, their kind of desire or their, their idea that I'm, I'm earning this by my righteous living. I'm saved because look at how good I am. And that's how people think sometimes. And it feeds that pride. There's times where people want the idea that God owes them based on their good works. But God will never be indebted to us. We're always indebted to God because he's already done it all for us. And that's why we live for him. Because he's redeemed us, delivered us, saved us. He's purchased us by his blood. We're spared from hell. We're given a place in heaven. I mean, we're indebted to him in a good way. This isn't a, again, this isn't a, a burdensome thing. This is a blessing of what he's done and that we get to have life in him. In fact, all of our effort, those that are, are trying to earn their way, those that think that they're living a righteous life and that's why I'm going to heaven. And I've shared this with you so many times that it, it, it boggles my mind how many times I talk to people, whether it be out on the street or stores or whatever, and, and we start talking about these things and I ask them, you know, if they're going to heaven. And, and many times they say, oh, I'm a Christian. Sure, I believe I'm going to heaven. I'll ask them, why, why do you believe you're, you're going to heaven? What will you say? If God were to ask you, why should I let you in heaven? And, and their answer so often from people that say they're Christians is they'll say, well, oh, uh, that's a good question. Um, well, because I, I try to live a good life. I try to be a good person. And so often that becomes the, rarely do I hear from people to say, oh man, well, I'm going to heaven simply because Jesus died for me and my faith and my trust is in him. That's it. I rarely hear that from people. And it just goes to show that in the back of people's minds, they're so often relying upon their works. And if you're relying on your righteousness, here's what God would say in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, that all of your righteousness is as filthy rags before God. God looks at all the righteousness and he says, that's as though it says filthy rags. Why? Well, because you're diminishing the work that Jesus did on the cross. You're basically saying, Jesus you coming and sacrificing yourself in the most painful, grotesque way and dying on a cross in the most humiliating way wasn't enough. I got to add to that. We're diminishing the work that Jesus did and saying it wasn't sufficient. Got to help, help out a little bit. God says, your righteousness, it says filthy rags. Means nothing. 
The salvation that we receive is not because we deserve it or have earned it. It's a gift from God. And you see, the crowds here, they totally missed what Jesus said in verse 27. Which says that the Son of Man will give to you. Do you see that? Verse 27, which the Son of Man will give you. It's, it's a gift. It's free. You don't earn it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. Now, this salvation, like we've been seeing, gets, gets appropriated through our believing in Jesus. That's what Jesus points out here. The work of God is that you believe in him whom God has sent. In other words, you put your complete trust in Jesus, that he's the one that God has sent to be that deliverer and savior, the one that forgives our sin through our faith in him. It's not through what you do. It's through what Jesus has already done for you. He's paid the penalty for your sin. He's taken the wrath of God while he hung on the cross so that you wouldn't have to. He was judged for your sin and my sin so that we wouldn't have to face that judgment for our sin. That when you put your trust in Jesus, he cleanses you. That record of all your sins is wiped clean. The slate is clean. And guess what? He never adds to it any longer if you're in Christ. When you sin today, he doesn't say, oh, there's another one. Let's see how much he's going to do this week. He says, no, it's, it's forgiven. It was already taken care of on the cross. The work is done. And this being where it says to put your trust in him, it's more than just having that intellectual trust. Sorry, I'm trying to run through that slide now again. It's more than having that intellectual trust where, or, or, or faith where it's just like, well, I believe in, in a God. It's having that, that you're putting your whole commitment in Christ. That's what it's speaking of here. It, it's being committed to Jesus, knowing that without him, you are lost and perishing. So you put your complete trust in him. Look at verse 30 here as we continue on. It says, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the man in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So the crowd is hearing Jesus, right? He's hearing the message that he's saying that's tying in the feeding of the 5,000 to what he's come to do. But check this out. They want a greater confirmation now that he's really something. Show us a sign, they say. What sign will you perform that we may believe you? Show us a sign? Really? Are you forgetting just yesterday? He took five loaves of bread and two small fish and fed up towards, up towards 15,000 of you? Was that not a sign right there? Was that not significant enough for you? You're just listening to this crowd. You're thinking, what? How crazy are you guys? What more do you need? And that often, you know, really becomes the problem with a faith that's built on seeing and not trusting. Because Paul would say that we need to walk by faith and not by sight. And there's a lot of people that are relying upon signs of God, that are relying upon the works of God. They want to see these things so that they can really just have that faith in him. Too often people are, are quick to say, you know, if only God would reveal himself in this way then I would really just surrender my life to him. If only God could do some kind of miracle, then I know this family member I've been praying for would come to know him. 
If only God would just do this or do that. But you see, those things aren't true. Do you remember the Israelites in the wilderness? And, and, and you know, we're kind of talking about this as we go through this message here. But the Israelites in the wilderness, they were delivered out of Egypt. They're led to the Red Sea. The seas parted and then all the Pharaoh's army drowns in it. They need water. God provides water from a rock. They need food. He rains down manna from heaven. Guess what? They saw miracle after miracle. And what did they do? They complained. They grumbled. And they weren't allowed to get into the promised land because of what? Unbelief. Think about that. Could you imagine if we got to witness the things that they witnessed in the wilderness? A pillar of cloud by day leading them. Pillar of fire by night. That was God's presence directing them in the evening time. Keeping them sheltered from the sun during the day. Keeping them warm without fire at night. God was nothing but good and revealed himself time and time again to them. And yet they still could not believe that God would bring them into the promised land. Shocks me. But you see, if your faith is dependent on things, upon God showing you stuff then that's not a faith that's going to be strong. Because our faith doesn't come from seeing these things, but truly believing in what God has already done for us. A faith that is experiential and relying on signs will never satisfy or build true faith because you'll keep wanting to see the next thing. Show us something more. Show us something greater. Oh, that was good last week, God. But I'm ready for something more now. What's the next big thing you're going to do? It'll never be satisfied. It'll never build true faith. You see, many people today say, show me and I'll believe. But God says, believe and you will see. Is that how the world thinks? Show me and I'll believe. God says, nah, I've already shown you. Just believe and then I'll show you more. Believe and you will see. So Jesus needs to bring some correction now to their reasoning and expectations. We've seen here in these first few verses the curiosity of the seekers. Now we see the correction by the Savior in verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now first of all, Jesus corrects their thinking over who was responsible for providing for them in the wilderness. Because they're all looking back saying, Oh, Moses was this great guy that provided manna from heaven. Now, they're not remembering how much they complained back then. But they're just looking at Moses being this great guy. And they're looking at Jesus and I'm saying, hey, so what are you going to do? Are you going to be able to match the stuff that Moses did? And Jesus says, oh, guys, hold on a second. See, you're giving credit where credit isn't due. It wasn't Moses. It came from God from heaven. He's the one that supplied all of that for you. It's our Heavenly Father that supplies all of our needs. And God has provided for our greatest need by sending us Jesus. Understand that. And whatever you might encounter in life from this day forward, where you might be saying, Jesus, I need you to provide this. I need you to do this. I need you to work this work in my life. Understand that he has provided for you already the greatest need that you have. That was salvation. To know that now whatever we might encounter in life, 
Whatever we might go through, it's temporary. We have an eternal life waiting for us. Blessed life. Life with Him. Now, remember, this is all. This whole scene that we're looking at here is all taking place over Passover season. Chapter 6 recalls that for us, that the Passover was near. So this is the time that they're certainly really having in their minds this idea about Moses and and, and how they were led out of Egypt, Moses being the great leader for them. And so these things were all really fresh on their minds. But Jesus seeks to remind them that God provides the true bread from heaven. And it's all wrapped up in Jesus. It's not about Moses. We're not talking about manna. We're talking about something far greater here. Because it's Jesus, the Messiah. But Jesus seeks to remind them that God provides here that, that true bread from heaven. And the manna that their fathers experienced was just a sample It was a a taste of what was to come. Jesus is the true bread, the full satisfier. He's the only one. He's the only one that can truly make us whole. See, regular bread that they would have experienced with the manna would have just sustained life. But now the true bread from heaven wrapped up in Jesus gives life. The miracle they experienced with the, the five loaves multiplying and the manna way back with their fathers just simply sustained life. But Jesus gives life so they respond in the only wise way you should respond they say in verse 34 they said to him lord give us this bread always sounds good to me serve it up we'll take it but again they're only thinking on the kind of natural terms the fleshly means just like the woman at the well when jesus was speaking to her about the living water she's like okay i'll take it so i never have to come back to this well and draw water again give me this water that won't run out They're thinking just natural. They're thinking with their stomachs, their fleshy appetites. We so often are led by the fleshy impulses or appetites, but Jesus is looking to lift us up above these things to find the real satisfying life in them. That's why why things like fasting is so important. Because it, it, it leads us to the place where we're saying, Lord, I'm not living for my fleshy appetites. So often, man, I'm just driven by, okay, when's it lunchtime? When's the dinner time? My whole day revolves around what am I going to eat? What am I going to do? When are we, where are we going to go? And, and we just get driven by these things. And, and, and that's where fasting can become such a, a great spiritual practice of just saying, I'm going to deny myself the, the kind of fleshly desires that oftentimes drive me. I'm going to take that time to say, Lord, I just want to spend with you. I just want to be refreshed in you. I don't have to get crazy and say, like, we're fasting for, like, three days. It could just be a meal. It doesn't have to be anything crazy, but that's a good practice to begin to just do once in a while. And so Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.35 here now as, as Warren Wiersbe writes here, contains the first of seven great I am statements recorded by John. Statements that are found nowhere else in the Gospels. For the other six, see John 8, 12, and then you see the verses up on the screen there. That's where the other I am statements are. But God revealed himself to Moses. Remember, as we're talking about this whole encounter with Moses also, God revealed himself to Moses when Moses said, who shall I say has sent me? God says, I am meaning Jehovah or Yahweh. 
God is the self-existent one who is and was and is to come. When Jesus used the name I am, he was completely, definitely claiming himself to be God. This was a statement that Jesus was making when he says, I am the bread of life. This wasn't just kind of saying, ah, in me you'll be, you'll find true satisfaction. He's making a direct statement here to declare his deity that the people would have understood well. There were other times where Jews, when they heard those words, I am, picked up stones to stone them for blasphemy. They knew exactly what he was saying. Now that term would have been associated with, with Yahweh, Jehovah, so that when the crowds heard Jesus say, I am, it was in connection to his claim to be Yahweh. And each I am statement represents a particular relationship of Jesus to the spiritual needs of humans. Their light and darkness, their entrance into security and fellowship, their guide and protector in life, their hope in death, their certainty and perplexity, and their source of vitality for productiveness. Those are all things that we'll see when Jesus uses those I am statements. I am the door. I am the light of the world. All these things that we'll see in our study through John, because only John records these things, we're going to see that he is completely representing a particular aspect or relationship of Jesus and how he meets our needs, how he provides for us. Now, Jesus came totally to dissatisfy the spiritual hunger in our lives, a spiritual hunger that we all have. And it's apparent within all of humanity. People are born with the need inside of them for an experience and relationship with God. Understand that. We're created by God and we're created to be in fellowship with God, to be worshipers of God. So those that aren't enjoying that and doing that are are missing something. That's an innate part of them. And they don't know what it is. But there's that desire, that, that impulse within them that they will try to find through other things if not in God. So I see so many people hurting and, and broken. They're trying to fix this thing in their life that's missing through the wrong means. It's only in Jesus will they find that being satisfied and being complete and being made whole. And that's what Jesus is leading the crowd to. It's only Jesus that can satisfy. Stop looking for the next meal. Stop looking for what Jesus can do for you and provide for you. Just find the life that he is to you. Look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Earlier the people had asked for a sign, right? Give us something that can really help us to believe. But Jesus says here that they have seen him, the very one from the Father who's already built a pretty big repertoire of what he's able to do through signs, through miracles. He's already showed these things and they still don't believe. It's not another sign that's going to do it. They need just to respond by faith and say, I'm going to accept now who you say you are, Jesus. See, the Son of God could stand before them in perfect manhood and not be recognized by them. Then it was doubtful that any sign that he would perform would convince them. Jesus knows that many are not going to follow him because they're not willing to open their minds and their hearts to to receive him, to accept him. But, Many will come to Jesus because why? Jesus says the Father's drawing them. Father's leading them. And these that the Father draws to Jesus, he will not turn away. All that the Father gives me, says in verse 37, will come to me. And then when it comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Isn't that great? In other words, 
Everybody that puts their faith in Jesus isn't going to be turned away. We see here that the Father does indeed lead people to the Son for salvation, yet whosoever will may come, and they're not going to be turned away. That's a, there's a wonderful balance here between these two thoughts that are, are so hard to reconcile because we're seeing in this account this idea that has been that, that age-old debate within the church of you know the election of God and man's free will or responsibility. There's that great debate that says, well, only those that are the elect are going to be saved. That God chooses those who are going to be saved. And then some will believe that God then chooses some that will go to hell. Now, that second part I don't believe, but I do believe that God chooses those that are going to be saved. But the Bible also says that there is that side of responsibility. And that the Bible teaches both. You see, this great debate happens only because people swing one side or the other. They go too far where they say, oh, it's this. And it has to be that and it can't be anything but that. Because their minds are finite. And they can't reconcile how God can be bigger than that and say that God allows men to have free will and yet still exercise his sovereignty. God's a big God. I don't need to question that. I may not understand it, but I don't need to question it because I know that God is able. And the Bible teaches very emphatically that he's given man choice, that man has free will, but that he also elects. When a church member asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled these two, he replied, I never try to reconcile friends. See, that's it. It's the Father's will that sinners be saved and that those who trust Christ will be secure in their salvation. Believers receive eternal life and Jesus can never lose them. He'll by no means turn anybody away. You're not going to come to Jesus and Jesus says, oh, sorry, you're not on the elect list. Sorry, can't come. He's not going to cast anybody away. Whosoever will may come, the Bible says. But we need, to, we need to make that decision. To say, I'm going to respond. I'm going to turn to Jesus and put my faith in him. Goes on to say, verse 38 to 40, let's close up this chapter here, or this, this section here. It says in verse 38, For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus has stated several times that he has come down from heaven, right? His origin is without doubt, and the people would have been very aware of that. He also states several times that he's come to do the Father's will. That's the wise thing to follow, isn't it? We're too often quick to follow our own agenda, to seek our own will when... Jesus himself came simply to do the will of the Father. True contentment comes for us in doing the will of God, following his plan for our lives. That's where we will have fulfillment. And what what awesome, wonderful words we read there in verse 39. This is the will of the Father sent me that of all he's given me, I should lose nothing. 
I will lose nothing, but will raise it up at the last day. See, when we give our lives to Jesus, we are truly guaranteed eternal life. When you place your life in his hands, you are in good hands, and nothing will be able to pluck you out of his hands, according to John 10, 28. And look at what we read elsewhere in Scripture. That speaks on that. Philippians 1, 6, being confident in this very thing, that he has begun a good work, and he will complete it. Until the day of Jesus Christ. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Colossians 1. 21 to 23. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. I can't do that. I'm not able to present myself holy and blameless and above reproach. Oh my goodness, far from it. But Jesus is able. And he's going to raise us up in that last day. Where we are clothed in his righteousness by faith and trust in him. See, when Paul said in Romans 8.38 that not even death nor life can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, he no doubt had a mind that we would indeed be raised up in that day. Even though you may have died, oh, there's life to come. That life in Jesus just continues on and it gets better and better. So the question is, have you seen the sun today? That's what Jesus says. Everyone who sees the sun and believes in him may have everlasting life. Now it doesn't mean that those that have seen Jesus with their physical eyes today. I'm sure there'd be very few that could say that. And we'd wonder if somebody said they've seen Jesus with their physical eyes. We'd kind of question that a little bit. So it's not physical eyes, but rather to see with the eyes of faith. Have you seen the Son? Have you seen His work for you today? Have you seen what He is to you? Have you seen that He is indeed the bread of life that will not just sustain you, but be your life? Have you seen him? Have you put your trust in him? Are you enjoying that life today? The life that truly satisfies? It's not about trying to enjoy life. It's about enjoying Jesus in this life. Understand that. It's not about trying to enjoy this life. It's about enjoying Jesus in this life. Because he is the bread of life that satisfies. So what have you been hoping for Jesus to do in your life? Are your expectations in line with the will of the Father? Have you been exercising that walk of faith? It's when we walk by faith and not by sight that we can really see the work of God. Are you living with an assurance of salvation today? Is your assurance dependent more on your good living or is it based in His good work that's already complete and given freely to you? So some things that we need to ponder and ask here today. Join with me in prayer. Lord, we we look to you right now and we thank you for this word and this reminder that you've come indeed to be the bread of life. We are so easily driven or distracted by our own fleshly desires and and, and those impulses that want to feed our own cravings. And yet, Lord, we know that there's no satisfaction apart from you because you're the life. Life is is you it's found in you and so i pray that we would be those that are are living by faith believing in you for 
eternal life. That's the, that's the work of God. Is that we'd believe in you, Jesus. So I pray today for all of us here that we'd be those truly enjoying you, Jesus, in this life. For those that are going through difficulty or sickness, hardships, Lord, I pray that you come alongside them and just reveal your goodness to them. Remind them that you care, you love them. But help them to see that though this life may not always be perfect, we have the perfect life in you, Jesus. May we hold on to you. May we live in you and for you. Enable us to do that. Help us, Lord. And thank you that we have the great hope of eternal life. So we yield, we surrender, we live for you, we love you, Jesus. Lead us on from here now, we pray in your name. Amen.